There was something on my heart as I was praying about this this morning, and we'll, we'll pray over the message in a minute. But I just, and I pray this often, but I really felt in my heart impressed because what God wants to show us today, and it's obviously we're talking, continuing to, to learn about that God loves us, loves you, not us. He loves you. He loves you. He loves me. It's got to be personal. And, and, and we all know this in our head, but it takes a revelation of it. It takes something deposited in us by the Spirit of God. And I pray this almost every Sunday, but I want to, I want to mention the process to you. In 2 Corinthians, we're going to get into this Wednesday night. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about, for chapter 1, he talks about the wisdom of this world, and he said, in God's eyes, it's foolishness. But chapter 2 says there is a wisdom that God has. There are things that God, true wisdom only comes from God. But he says, this wisdom our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of man. That's 2 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse uh, uh, 9. But then it goes on to say, but God has revealed these things to us by his spirit. And it goes on to say that the spirit of God searches the heart of God to reveal to us the things that God has for us that are in his heart. And I've got to believe that if there's anything that's in God's heart he wants to reveal to us, it's his love for us. And so we're going to pray and believe this morning because this is not something that has to go into your mind. It's got to drop into your heart and it has to be done by the Spirit of God. And we can't make that happen, but we can ask for it to happen, and we can create the atmosphere in which it does happen. And in a, in a, in a, in a, in a church together like this, a family together, with our combined faith together, then that can create an atmosphere where the Spirit of God can just powerfully move in your life. And all it takes is a little light to go on. All it takes is just a spark that he begins to get in there and get through the darkness and the filminess. We talked Wednesday night about the end of 1 Corinthians 13 where he says we see in a mirror dimly. It's like getting up in the morning, taking your shower, and then trying to shave, and the mirror's all foggy. There's a, there's a figure there, but you can't see it clearly enough until you clean it off. There's things about God's love for you he wants you to see in your heart that you can't see until the film gets moved away. And there's a spiritual battle that goes on to try to confuse you. So while we're talking this morning, you're going to find there are things that are trying to distract you. You're going to notice things in here you've never noticed before. When I come in here to pray, I notice things I've never noticed before because I'm trying to focus on in here. And I notice those little doohickeys on the back of the chair that are on the floor. All these things I begin to notice because there's are distractions. The enemy's trying to distract me from hearing inside of here. So I'm sure I really felt impressed to share that with you so that we can together cooperate operate with the Spirit of God in what He wants to do to you. He wants all of us to leave here changed today. You know, all that takes is just a little glimpse of God's love. God's love is so overwhelming, that little glimpse gives Him an opening where He can begin to pour it into your life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So we're going to pray and ask the Spirit of God to do that. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We're going to bring your word back to you. We're going to argue and plead our case back to you based on your word. Your word says that in your heart there are things that our eyes have not seen, that our ears have not heard, nor has it entered into our hearts all that you have prepared for those who love you. And the greatest thing we know by faith that you prepared for us is the revelation of your love for us. But your word tells us that the Holy Spirit's been given to us to search the depths of your heart 
and to reveal to us, spirit to spirit, what those things are. That's what your word says. And Father, we argue your word. We bring your word back to you today and expect you to do what your word says to do. And we do this by faith because we need a revelation, a deeper revelation of the love that you have for us personally. And we thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, our signature series, a signature uh, verse that we're using, our foundational verse is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And we've talked about, as we began this series, and every, every time we've talked about it, it's, it's the key word in there is that third word, so. Because what this verse is trying to tell us, what this verse is telling us, is not just that God loves us, is how much God loves us. And as again, as I said earlier, all of us are here, I'm sure, because we believe in our mind, oh yeah, God loves me. But it's the revelation of how much He loves you. What we've learned is that revelation will drive fear out for perfected love, matured love, complete revelation of God's love drives fear out that it will change your, your, it will change your, uh, your, your love walk with people because you can't give something you haven't received. It will change your entire life. It will turn your life around. It will give you a hope and a future. When you see how much God loves you, it, cha- it, it, it completely changes your life and therefore begins to affect others around you. And, and that love in you becomes contagious. And so what we're going to begin to look at, we've looked at, at, at the things, that, the change, what it can do for us. And then we looked last week, of course, it was Father's Day. We looked at what, that, what a father is like and what a father's love is like. What we're going to begin to look at today is what this love is really like. And we're going to look at it from the Bible's point of view. Because understand this, the Bible has been given to us by God to reveal to us who He is and what He's like. You cannot know what God's like any other way. You can't know what God's like by reading commentaries. Commentaries are good, but they're man's understanding of what God's told us. And so the, 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 the source that God has provided for us for knowing what He's like, and I mentioned this, we talked about this Wednesday night, is, is His Word. So this is one of the purposes of this Word, is to, for God wants to reveal to us what He's like. And His Spirit has been given to us, and we just talked about that, to take this Word and to make it alive or quicken it in our hearts. And so this is what we have to look to to find out what God says about His love for us. And so that's what we're going to begin to look at today. To do that, we're going to go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Starts out, Beloved. Or behold, excuse me, Behold. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Let's stop right there. So this chapter, and of course this is not written in chapters and verses, this was a letter that John wrote to the churches. Behold, and that word behold actually in the Greek is plural, so it's talking to all of us. Wake up, look, what manner of love, and there's kind of a, there's kind of a, you know, we don't read your Bible as if it's just information. It's God speaking to us, and God's trying to say to behold, now we wouldn't say behold to one another. Behold, what a beautiful day it is. We say, wow, Woo, what a gorgeous day it is. So let's do that. Wow, my goodness, what kind of love is the Father bestowed on us? See, when we say behold, it sounds religious. Behold, what manner of love. No, wow, what manner of love has the Father bestowed on us? 
Now, the term manner of love in the Greek literally means what foreign type of love. It's referring to the customs and the languages and the practices of a foreign nation. And if you've ever traveled to a foreign nation, especially a non-English a non-English speaking nation or a nation where the, the language, the na- national language is not one that you speak, you discover that there are customs. When we've been on mission trips, one of the first rules we learned is you find, you get a hold of the person that's in charge of you there and you only do what they tell you to do and you don't do what they tell you not to do. And, you know, we've been on trips where people wander off and it's not, you know, you may wander off here, but it's not safe to wander off there unless the person you're with tells you it's, we've been told, don't go there. Our son was on a mission trip in in in, um, in the Ukraine about 12 years ago. No, yeah, 12 years ago, and they said, you know, we don't care what happens, don't leave our group. And some perch snatcher came by to grab some, and he started after him, and they grabbed him. They said, you don't understand, this is not the United States. They put you in jail here. They put you in jail, and they don't like us here. Then this was back 12 years ago. And so you've got to learn what the protocol is for the nation you're in. You've got to learn what the language is. You've got to, it's very different when you're in a place and you can't read the signs. You know, you don't know whether which side of the street do they drive on. It's, 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 a, it's, it's an interesting experience. And that's what John's saying here. That this kind of love that he's saying wow about is a foreign kind of love. It's not something we're used to. Now, right away, that tells us something, and this is important at this part of our study. That means what we're going to look at, what God wants to tell us about this kind of love, you've got to take out your experience from your own nation, your own life, your own experience with people, and you can't use that now. Just like he found out, our son found out that in, in the Ukraine, especially in Krakow where he was, you can't do what you used to do at home. You can't operate the way you do at home because you're in a different country. You're in a different world right now. And one of the things we need to wake up, this is, I got to be careful. This is a little side trip here is as our world's changing, our nation's changing. And we cannot just assume things are always going to be the way they've always been because unless we wake up and realize that we're going to try to minister and function around people and they don't understand what we're talking about, even though we're speaking the same natural language. And so, uh, but this is what this means. So what this means to us, because whenever we talk, hear the word love, we all have some understanding of what that means. And the understanding of what we have of the word love comes from our upbringing, our experiences. Because a young child, six months old, doesn't understand what love means, and our parents teach us what that word means by how they act with us and interact with us. So if you had parents that were just... They, they, you know, they were mean, they were nasty, they were, you know, you had alcoholic parents or father, you had where you were abused, then when you heard the word love, it meant something different to you than someone that was raised in a family where love meant you were sincerely, truly valued, you were protected, you were important. And so that word love means something very different. And this is one of the things I've had to, to struggle and overcome in my life because there were some things I wasn't abused, but there were some things that you, love was used as a tool to manipulate in my family. And so I've had to, it's hard when somebody says, I love you, my first reaction is, yes, yeah, show me. And I have to overcome that and realize, when, especially when it comes to God. So it's important as we begin to talk about what this love that God has for us is really like because all of us come into this with a prejudice towards it. 
in the, in the sense of we all have some built-in idea of what this love means and how open and how close and how intimate you feel with God right now is most likely a reflection of what you think that love is like. Because that love, as we've talked about, His love for you is like the sun. Today we have no problem believing that the sun is warm and it's red, you know, it's orange or whatever color it is right now up there, and it's shining on us because you can see it. But we've had days and sometimes weeks where you don't see it, and especially in the wintertime, and it's bleak and it's overcast, and is it really still up there? Well, we know it is. We know it is because we know it's going to come back out again. We understand with our mind it's up there. Well, in the same way, God's true love towards you is there all all the time. It's been shining since the beginning of creation. The issue is our receiving it and believing it. And that's based on what we already have, the attitudes and the beliefs we have inside. So we're going to go through a process that Romans 12.2 refers to as renewing the mind. We're going to have to learn to change what we think about love, God's kind of love. You can still think about every other kind of love the way you have, but when it comes to understanding God's love, we cannot think in the terms we have before. Now, to understand that, I want to just very quickly, we're going to, this is going to be kind of teachy for a moment, but it's, it's, it's an important for us to understand because, because we're not just, I'm not just teaching information. We're reprogramming this computer up here right now. Now, in English, we have one word for all of this, and it's love. And it covers everything from I love peanut butter to I love my wife. And I better not mean the same thing when I say I love my wife the way I love peanut butter, or it's not so much peanut butter, but... Oreo cookies and things like that that aren't good for me. So, the Greeks were much more disciplined than that. They were much, their minds were much more trained and precise. So they had a number of words. They actually had five main words, but four, four main words that were our, in, in, in our English Bibles are translated love. But there were four different words with four different meanings. Some way they overlap a little bit, but I want to just go through them with you, and I want to go through them with you to show you what a wide variety is, and we're going to lead up to this kind of love that we're talking about here. So, the first type of love that we're going to talk about in Greek, and I didn't put them on the screen because I don't care whether you know it or not. You can look it up. Is sturge which basically means a, a general affection or desire. It's a leaning towards something. You know, I have an affection towards peanut butter. So, okay, that's stergay. So I just, I like it. it I, you know, I'm partial to it. That's kind of what that word means. When that word is used in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's translated love. The second word, which is a word you've probably heard before, is eros. And, I, and, I, and our, our immediate reaction is to think of some kind of perverted sexual desire. But as I look the word up, it means something more than that. It means a passion for someone or something that overpowers you. It's an overpowering passion or drive towards it. And it can refer to sexual drive, but it can also, one of the terms that's used in other writers is for a, a child's dependence upon its mother. A child's, I need my mother. I've got to be, where's mom? So that's, that's Eros. Now, a much more common word for, for, and that's translated love in the Bible, where it appears, which isn't many times. A much more common Greek word that's translated love is phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O. Philadelphia comes from that. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. But that's literally what that word means. Phileo is brotherly love. Delphi is a word for city. 
in Greek. So it's, it's brotherly love. And what it really, what it means is I've studied it out. By the way, it appears 45 times in the New Testament. And it is based on some value or good feeling that you get from being with somebody. This love is motivated or driven by, and what it's doing is these are, def- these are describing emotions. Passion is an emotion, which is eros is a passion, that's an emotion. Sterge, which is an affection towards, is a kind of emotion, it's a, it's a watered-down emotion. Phileo is an emotion, and basically it is, it is I enjoy being with you. It's, friendship is the simplest term that's used, but it's a little more than that. And the root of it is, what, what, what I phileo you about is what, I'm, what I get back from being with you. I enjoy your presence, I enjoy your company. And so, uh, companionship, there's a sense of community that, that comes with this. Now, these words were very commonly used in the Greek classical languages and everything else because you understand that the New Testament was written in Greek. It was the predominant language of the day. And so the Spirit of God, when He inspired Luke, when He inspired John, when He inspired uh, 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 Matthew, when He inspired the writers, Peter, he, they wrote in the language of that day. Their principal language was Hebrew or Chaldean, but they wrote in the language, the commercial language of the day, which was a form of Greek. And so, I'm just going through that, so you understand that the original texts of this are Greek, which means the Holy Spirit chose Greek words, because English wasn't invented yet, chose Greek words to use to communicate what he wanted communicated through these men. You're following me so far? Okay. So, what we have here sitting in your lap or on your tablet or your phone is translators' versions of what the Holy Spirit gave them in Greek. Okay? All right. So, the reason I'm saying that with you is the last word, the fourth word for love, is the word agapeo. And the reason I gave you that information is because that word was very rarely used in Greek writing. It was very rarely used in Greek writing. So it's a word, in, in essence, that the Holy Spirit has brought out of the Greek vocabulary and chosen a word that really did not have a very developed meaning. And, and, and so the, the New Testament really defines for us what agape, agapeo means. But what it did mean in classical Greek is this. It implies that the object of the love has some inherent or innate preciousness or is highly valued. So with phileo, the the emotion is coming from what I get out of our relationship, whatever's causing that. Either because we, you know, we like each other, we agree on things, or, you know, or, or we just enjoy eating pizza together, or, or we, you know, we, we belong to the same book of the month club and we read the same, whatever it is, something we have in common that develops this sense of, of, of pleasure that I get in being with you and talking with you. I mean, that's what Facebook's all about, isn't it? It's having some kind of connection with people and even though you don't necessarily know them or what they're really like now. I don't want to go there. Um, so, but, but agape, the basis of this, and the other thing is the difference between all the others and agape is agape is not rooted in an emotion. It's not rooted in an emotion. This is important for what we're going to say. 
This is all laying a foundation of renewing our mind to what the Bible says this love is that's foreign to us. So the Holy Spirit took a word that wasn't totally foreign, but it didn't have a developed, established meaning, and he filled in the colors and the blanks in the New Testament. And that's what we're going to be looking at together. So this word is basically says, the, the, the love that I have for you is based on an, is a, a value that I, see, that I see in you, a preciousness that I see in you, and that's why I value you, because I see something in you or something in this object, which is, you know, it's interesting because you see on, on these TV programs, which I don't really watch very often, but on the PBS and things like that, that is these, you know, you can go into, bring your, your family heirloom you found up in your, your junk, you found up in your, in your attic or your, your, as you were cleaning out your uh, garage, and you go take it to them and find out whether it has any real value. And I don't want, I haven't watched it very often, but you, sometimes you see them coming in and say, wow, I found this, and it's got, you know, it's old. I, I remember finding, when we cleaned out my mother's house when she, we moved her up here, as I found an old Bible. I said, wow, this is old, and it looked old. And I got a hold of somebody that knew something about this, he says, it's probably worth 20 bucks. I was, I was thinking in the thousands, you know. <laughs> now, when people establish value, I used to deal with this when I was a lawyer, because one of the things we had to do is establish value for things in, in a case. And a value is only what somebody's willing to pay for it. Right? I mean, if there's no market for it, you can have the Hope Diamond. And if nobody wants to buy it or can afford it, it can, you know, it's not worth anything to you if nobody's willing to pay for it. And so you can have the most beautiful house in your neighborhood, but if nobody's willing to buy it, you can't just convert that value into cash unless somebody's willing to buy it. That's called the market value of things in, in, in valuation of things. So that's, that's, what, that's what agape is based on. Your, the, the, this love that, that I have for this object or that I have for this person is based on something I see in this, some preciousness, some qualities or characteristics that I see in it that makes me have it value to me. All right, everybody with me so far? Okay, that's what the traditional definition or meaning of, of, of agape is. So what makes this love different is that out of his, this love, God has made us... Well, we're going to get, I come out of my... Okay, now, let's take a look at this. The next principle I want to lay before you is how can we understand... How, how can we... Because what we're about... What we're going on is a, is a journey together where we can gain an understanding, not so much in our head, but in our heart, of what this foreign type of love is like. Well, how do you... Let me ask you this question. How do you find out what somebody's love for you is like. Because it's, it's in the heart. Love comes out of the heart. And I don't mean that, that, that organ in your body that has four chambers that are pumping blood through your body right now. I mean the heart, the essence of who you are. How can you tell? We don't have little windows here. No? We don't have little windows here. We can just look inside and say, you know what? They're saying nice things to me, but mm, I think I'll just kind of stay away from them. Or, you know, I don't know, you know, you just, you know, you can see inside, you, boy, that person really loves me. You can't look inside somebody's heart. So how, how can we know, how can we know what, what's really in someone's heart? Because here's the problem. If you can't see in my heart what's really going on in there, and you can see my body, 
how much more difficult is it to see what's in God's heart when we can't even see His body? So how are we going to know? I mean, we're hearing God loves us, but how do, how do I know that? Because that's what we're looking for. Not just, yes, I agree with that, but how do we know that enough that I can step out and trust that He has me covered because He loves me? Well, let's go to James chapter 2 because there's, a, there's an answer in here, a principle in here. James chapter 2. And he's talking about faith here, but you can't see somebody's faith either. Because we deal all the time as pastors with people that, are, that, that either think they're in faith or don't think they're in faith. And you can't tell just because they say they're in faith or don't think they're in faith or whether, whether they really are. And that's what he's talking about here. James chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So I say, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and are tremble. That puts the demons ahead of most Christians. In other words, Paul or James is saying, you say, well, I, I believe in God. Well, the devil believes in God. What good did that do him? The demons believe in God and they tremble. They tremble at his authority, but they're in hell, or headed there. So what good is that? Because although they believe it, it's not changed them. They believe it here. Verse 20. But do you not want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. That word also means useless. Now some people have trouble with this because I thought we're saved by faith and not by works. We are. The book of Hebrews is a tremendous book about the grace of God and the foundation of the grace of God. And I believe the fact that James follows it is not an, not an accident. Because what part of James is about, not all of James is about, part of his letter is about saying, okay, you say we're, fa we're saved by faith, by grace received through faith, and I have faith in God's in Christ, and Christ died for me, then what he's saying is then we ought to see some change in you. If there's something changed in your heart, that ought to eventually begin to show up on the outside. So what he's saying is faith, what you believe in your heart, without some corresponding outward action, is useless. And I don't want to go off and teach on faith right now because we could spend quite a bit of time on that. But what he's saying is the way you determine what's on the heart is by the actions, the, the fruit of, those, of what's in the heart. It's put another way in other places. Out of the abundance of the heart, what's in the heart, the mouth speaks. That's fruit of what's in your heart. So what we think we believe is not necessarily what we believe. The proof of what we believe is what we do. The proof of what's in our heart is how we act. Now, not perfect or imperfect. I'm not talking about that. But if you've been saved for 25 years and you're still just as carnal and just as messed up as you were 25 years ago, 
we need to ask some questions. There ought to be some growth and progress, some maturing, some fruit coming out of this change that took place on the inside of us. But the principle, that's what James is talking about here. But the principle that I want to draw from this is this, is that the way you can tell what's in someone's heart is by the fruit that you see in their life, the action that you see. We're not talking about whether you're saved or not, because the fruit in your life does not determine whether you're going to heaven or not. The fruit tells you what kind of tree it is. And you've used, heard me use over and over again when people respond to an altar call that, 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 that it's not shocking to find out that an apple tree produces apples. In fact, that's one of the ways. Now, some people can tell by looking at the leaves and the bark. My mother was a horticulturist. I, all I could tell was not much. Poison ivy. I learned to, to identify poison ivy because that was important to me. Um, how do I, where did I go there? Okay, I just got lost. Okay, yes. But, but I can tell an apple tree from a pear tree. And I can't tell it by the bark, and I can't tell it by the leaves, but I can tell it by the fruit. So if I see apples hanging from an apple, from a tree, it doesn't take much for this swift mind to say, that's an apple tree. And if I see pears coming from a tree, that's a pear tree. So we're all horticulturists here, botanists, because we can tell the difference between an apple tree and a pear tree if it's a fruit if it's the season for bearing fruit. But if I see pears coming from an apple tree, something's wrong. And so that's all he's talking about here. You can tell what's going on, and this is one of the ways of discerning that I think John talks about and Peter talks about. You can discern, because there are people that will come through and they'll prophesy over you and they'll tell you all kinds of things. But what I look at is, all right, I want to see the fruit in their life. Are they living this? Or is this just something you do Sunday morning? Are they, and none of us are perfect. So I'm sure, certainly far from per perfect. And if you have doubt about that, just you can ask my wife or my family. They know I am far, but they know I'm far from perfect. <laughs> I just want to see how energetic she was. <laughs> but I'm endeavoring to live it. I'm committed to live it. And so the point here is, how are we going to know what's in God's heart the same way. See, God, understand, God wants us to know what's in His heart towards us. That's why He gave us this. He, wa he wants you to know how much He loves you infinitely more than you want to know it. In fact, He has to whet our appetites so we even want to know it. Think about that. He's wooing you. Anybody understand what woo is? That's an old term, but... He's wooing you. He's, 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 you know, I don't do it all the time, but I still woo my wife. I still to try to, you know, I'll open the door for her. Not all the time. I'll wait for her to eat. She said, why would you wait for me? I said, that's how I won you to begin with. The first time we were together. I just, she said, why did you wait for me to eat? I said, because my mother taught me to wait. So I waited for her. And that got her attention. Something was different about, about me. So I'm, I'm not going to blow it. I learned what it takes. You know? I don't stop. I, I'm not perfect at it. I don't hold the door all the time, but I'll hold her chair or put her chair in for her. I want her to know that she's valuable to me. Again, I'm far from perfect at this. 
How did I get off on that? Okay. Oh, evidence. Okay. <laughs> Some of my dating our dates are going through my head. Oh, so I still pursue her. I'm still wooing her. This year we're married 49 years. I'm still wooing her. I'm still wooing her. But God's still wooing you. God's still wooing you. I mean, he, he loved us so much that he gave his son his life in our place. And then he had to get through our dumb heads what he did for us and wait for us to get smart enough to accept it and help us to do that. And having done all that, he's still trying to show us how much he loves us. Why? Maybe it'll get through to us. He really does love us and wants us to be commune with him, to be with him and not just call on him when we're in trouble. He wa- the reason he made man to begin with was to have a relationship with him. And it hasn't changed. The reason he saved us and he's done all that he's done and he's put his spirit inside of us so he can have a relationship with you. And this is what will change your life. This is what change the young people. We're talking about reaching young people. It, what will reach their, change their life is to know that God is real. And he's not just up in heaven, he's here. And he wants to love you and be involved in your life and, and in your homework. And your, I mean, I've shared with Wednesday night, and I've shared before, about when I was a lawyer, God was involved in my cases, helping me out. God loves you, and he wants to be part of your life. He wants to be part of every moment of your life. Not to crowd you out, but to make room for him. And he's the most exciting being there is. But he has to work, because even with as much as we know here, he's trying to draw us so we want more, to whet our appetite. Moses was on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights, didn't eat to eat anything or drink anything. And he comes towards the end of this and he says, God, I want to ask you something. I mean, here he is in his presence. Now, it's, it's this cloud that he's with. Cause, and, and he says, this is wonderful, God. This is great, but i got to have more. I mean, here he is. With the cloud of God, you know, and he's, he's so powerful as that life force of God's presence that he doesn't have to eat. He wasn't on a 40-day fast. He just didn't need to eat. He didn't need to drink anything, water or anything. Now, you can go for 40 days without eating, but you can't go more than three days or so or very long without drinking water or drinking something. The life of God, the presence of God was so tangible, it sustained him. Because God is life. And he comes to the end and he says, I'm not satisfied with this. See, the more of God you know, the more of God you want. You get greedy. And God is the only thing we can be greedy about. I want more. I want more. I want more. I want more. And Moses says, God, this has been wonderful, but I'm not satisfied. I want to see you. I want to see your face. This cloud's okay, but I, I, want, I, want, to see your, I want to see your glory. And God says, I can't show you my face because you can't live if you do that. But here's what I'll do. Here's what I'm going to do for you. He says, see that rock there? You go hide in that, that crack in the rock. And I'm going to put my cover over you. And I'm going to walk by. And when I go by, I'm going to just give you a peek of my backside. Like that. But I want, my point is that the more God Moses saw, the more he wanted. It whetted his appetite for more. So if you don't have a passion for God, God wants to place that in your heart. He wants to whet your appetite this morning. And what holds us back is the image we have of ourselves. 
What holds us back is we know ourselves. But I've got news for you. God knows you better than you know yourself. God knows you better than you know yourself. We need to move on here. Okay. So love is, this kind of love is an attitude of the heart. And the essence of this love, of this kind of love, is selflessness, not selfishness, selflessness. The essence of this kind of love is a selflessness. That it's about you, it's not about me. The essence of this kind of love is I love you because of you. There's a value that I see in you. You may not see it, but I see that value in you. And what we're going to learn is the value that God sees in you, He put in you. It's not some value you just happen to fall into. It's not some value you just happen to inherit from your parents. It's not some value that has anything to do with you at all. It's the value that God put in you. He put it in you so He could value you. You're precious to Him. You're precious to Him. You're precious to Him. You're valuable to Him. So the measure we're going to look at now, we're going to look at the evidence, the evidence, the outward evidence of what's in God's heart. And if the essence of this kind of love is selflessness, self-sacrificing, then the the degree to which somebody is selfless, the degree to which someone's willing to sacrifice gives us an insight to the degree of love that they have. Everybody following me so far? Some of you are. Okay, we better lay that again. This is important. What we're saying here is this. Love, because it's an attitude of the heart, you can't see inside of somebody. Especially God, because you can't even see Him. So how are we going to know what this love is really like? And what we found out is the way you find out what's in somebody's heart is what comes out of them. The way they behave the way they talk. That's the evidence, the outward evidence of what's in someone's heart. And what we're looking at is this kind of love that's in God's heart, this agape love, the Greek word agape, which is a selfless love. It's not based on what he gets out of it. It's not based on what I get. It's based on what I can give to you. So how are we going to value that? How are we going to know what measure that is? And the way we're going to know it is by looking at the deeds and to see how selfless they are and how far he's willing to go to prove how precious you are to him. Everybody with me now? That's more. Okay. Well, we'll move on. Okay. Now, we were in 1 John chapter 3. Let's go back there. We'll see this principle. <laughs> this chapter starts with, Behold, wow! What foreign kind of love, what weird, unusual type of love the Father has bestowed. By the way, you remember that's it's past tense. He has bestowed. He has given. And here's where we're going to go now. Now we're going to look at, okay, how do I know, how do I know, how do I know how much He loves me? How, do, how can I see in His heart? By this we know love because He laid His life down for us. How do we know what's in God's heart? How do we know how selfless His love is for us? How do we know how much He values us? 
Well, we said to earlier, how do you establish the market value? How do you establish the value of something? The value is what somebody's willing to pay for it. Somebody, <clears throat> ever go into a store or a mall, and I know the answer to this, <clears throat> and see this sign up that says sale? Only three of you ever been in a mall? <clears throat> Come on, ladies. Sale! We were visiting friends a few years ago, and my wife and she went shopping. And I, we, the, her husband and I came home from what we were doing, and, and she, first words to me is, wow, you can't imagine how much money I saved you. <laughs> and my first response is, how much did it cost me to save that money? <laughs> sales! Why do they hold sales? Because they can't get you to buy the price, the the shirts or the dresses at the original manufacturer's price. So they got to get you in the door, they got to lower the price of what they want to sell you, which means they've lowered the value of it to them. Now they know what that margin is because they're going to still make money somehow because they're trying to get you in the door. But the point is this, the only way you can determine the value of something is what somebody's willing to pay for it. Because when they're willing to part with that $35, that means they've decided that that dress or that shirt is worth more to them than that $35. This is, we all understand this stuff, right? Okay. Ever go to a restaurant and you look to the right side of the menu and say, I'd like that, but it's a little, the price is a little steep for me. What you're saying is as much as I'd like that porterhouse steak, not as much as I want to pay $32 for it. So you've made a calculation in your mind of how much that, even though you haven't seen the steak, of how much that steak's worth to you because it's not worth enough to pay that $32.95. Everybody with me? So that's value. That's how we know the value of something to somebody is what they're, first of all, they've got to want it, otherwise they're not going to look, and then what they're willing to pay for it. And what does God say about himself? By this we know love. We know what this kind... Remember he talked in the beginning of this chapter. is wow, what kind of weird fallen love is this that God has bestowed on us? And now he's going to show us what this love is like. By this, what he's about to say, we really know this what this love is. And why do we know this? Because the proof of what he did. Because he laid down his life for us. I mean, you've heard this many times before. But now with this background, maybe it'll get a little deeper in our hearts. The proof of how valuable and precious you are to God is he was willing to give his son's life for you. He looked at you through the eons of time. We'll probably get there at some point, but Ephesians chapter 1 says, He chose you, I think we talked about it last week. Yeah, we talked about it last week. He chose you before the foundation of the world. See, God doesn't live in time. He saw you before the world was formed. Everything you'd ever do wrong. Every bad thought you'd ever have. Everything you'd ever do wrong. He saw all of that 
and he looked at you and says, I still want them. And here's how much I want them. I'm willing to pay whatever it costs. I'm going to write a blank check. Imagine if you wanted something so much that you went to them and said, here, here's my checkbook. You fill it out. I, want, I don't care what it is. I want that so much. You fill in the amount. Sometimes at the stores now, you've got to sign the check and hand it to them, and they run through the cash register. You're trusting them, aren't you? God looked at you and said in his heart, you're so precious to me. You're so valuable to me. Whatever it costs to have you for myself. Because in Ephesians 1, it says, he predestined us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame in love so that he might adopt us to himself through Christ Jesus. He didn't just adopt you. He adopted you to himself so he could have you. And we're going to talk more about this because what we're going to begin to talk about next time and we're going to get in to get, in to get the steps of why God, what God went through. What we're looking at right now is the preciousness that this is a foreign type of love. This is not a love you see out in the world. It's not even a love you see very much in church, even though we're commanded to walk in this kind of love. But I think the reason we don't walk in this kind of love more is because we don't, haven't received this kind of love and we don't really understand because it doesn't compute up here. Because this mind is always calculating values. That's why you can go into a restaurant and decide, nah, I don't want to pay that much. You didn't stop and think, you know what? I need to do an evaluation here. You just look down the right side of the menu and you say, nah, no, yep, oh, okay, that's all right. That's, you know, that's okay. Or, or you go to a, you know, into a store without sales and you look at the price tag and say, is that really the price? So you're all the time, all day long, you're making mental calculations of what something's worth to you. Little decisions that you make our valuations that you're making. And God looked down through the eons of time and looked at you and said, this kind of love that's in my heart sees a value in you. And here's how much I value. Whatever it costs to have you back, I want to pay. Put that verse back up again, please. First John 3.16 well, no, let's go to Romans 5. Excuse me. Let's go to Romans 5. Got to move on. This will introduce this, and then we'll get into probably Ephesians next week. He's just established that we're all messed up. That just summarized chapters 1, 2, and 3. And, and all of us are. And if you think you're not, you really messed up. That's what chapter 2 says. Chapter 4 talks about what this faith is like that we're saved by. And chapter 5 starts out by, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. I mean, we could, oh, we could just dwell there. You have, you have peace with God. We sang that earlier. You may not be at peace with yourself. You may not be at peace with anybody else. But if you're in Christ, God's at peace with you. God's at peace with you. He's not looking down out of heaven saying, no, they're not doing this right, they're not doing that right, they better get this straightened out. He's at peace with you. 
And that's important because if there's anybody you want at peace with you, it's God. God's at peace with you. You've been having been, having been justified by faith. We have right now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2. Through whom we also have access, access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3. Not only that, we also were glory in tribulations. Well, we don't want to go there right now. Knowing that tribulation produces something, it produces perseverance. And perseverance, there's a building up of these things which we don't have time to get into. And perseverance produces character. That actually is proven character. And proven character produces hope. Now the word hope in the New Testament is not the kind of hope we tend to bandy about, which is, oh, you're going to be there tomorrow? I hope, they're going to, I hope so. No, that word means a confident, positive expectation of something good happening. That's what that word means. Verse 5. And hope does not disappoint. And he's talking about in all the things we still have to go through, we are to have a hope in God, a hope of a future that God has for us. And verse 5 says, that hope will not disappoint us. Why? How do I know that hope won't disappoint us? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Let's stay there a minute. I've heard that preached over and over again, and the principle's true, but I don't think that's what that verse says. I've heard, used that, heard that verse used to say, well, we can love others because God's poured His love out on us by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. And I believe that's true. But that's not the context he's talking about there. The context he's talking about there is why can we have hope for the future? With all the trouble tribulation may be going through, with all the, the having to be steadfast and hold on in the middle of a difficult world that we live in, and we're to have hope, how can I know I have this hope? Why can I, what tangible evidence can I have from God to know that I can have hope that the things he's told me are true, that he loves me? And the tangible evidence I can have that He loves me is He's already poured His love for me out by giving me His own Spirit. What He's talking about there is the evidence that I that, that I that my my the evidence of my love for you is I've already taken my love for you and put it into you by putting my Spirit into you. So the the, the experience of God's love is in us right now by His Spirit who's dwelling in us. And I'll back it up because in other places he talks about the Spirit as the guarantee of the things that God's promised us that are going to come. And that word in Greek is arabon, which literally means an engagement ring. It's the commitment. It's the first tangible evidence of the final commitment of our union with Him. And the Spirit who's been given to us is that. Verse 6. For when we were still without strength... Now we're going to talk about this evidence of how much God loves us. When we were still without strength, he's not talking about your physical strength, he's talking about your spiritual strength. Your ability to change yourself. Your ability to make yourself holy. Your ability to make yourself acceptable to God in the sense of being holy and without blame. While we were still without strength in due time, at the appointed time, look at this, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, we're talking about the second person of the Godhead. Perfect. Holy. All of the creation was created through Him. God was the source of it, but it was all created through. John talks about Him in the first chapter as in the beginning was the Word. That's the second person of God. That's the Son. 
But when he became, and Christ refers to the anointed one, the Messiah. At the appointed time, God's Son, holy and without blame, died for the ungodly. So what we're going to learn here is God's love for you is not based on you, anything you do. It's not based on whether you're godly or ungodly, holy or unholy, because the proof of it is he sent his son, he paid the ultimate price for you while you were, we were still ungodly. So he didn't look at it and say, well, you know, they're doing a pretty good job. I think now they've come along, they've served through their probation, now I'm willing to pay the price. When you buy a house, you put a down payment down, and then you do all the checking you've got to do. You get a house inspection, you check with make sure you can get your mortgage. You do all that before you give them the rest of the money. God put the rest of the money down before he ever before you ever accepted him. In fact, there are millions upon millions of people whom he paid for who will never accept him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ died for the ungodly, verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man would somebody die. What he's saying is somebody might possibly be good enough that he would look at somebody and say, you know what, they're worth dying for. And he said, that might happen, but very rarely, scarcely. Yet perhaps for a good one, man, someone might dare to die. Say, well, you know, their life's worth more than mine, so I, you know, I'll, I'll sacrifice my life for theirs. Verse 8. But God, there's that word, demonstrated. Remember, the way you can see what's in someone's heart is by what they do. God demonstrated what's in his heart. He demonstrated his own. That word in Greek means his own personal love towards us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Next verse. And may he, you he made alive, who were dead in our trespasses and... No, 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 no. You should have verse 10, 9 and 10. Go back to Romans 8, or Romans 5. If you don't, I'll read it. Okay. God demonstrates his love towards us, and that while we were sinners... Excuse me, that is all I gave you. And Christ died for us. We're going to have to begin to bring this to an end here. And we'll pick up here next week. I've really just kind of laid a foundation to begin to think about this. Because what we do is we read these scriptures. And many of you, if you've been around here long enough, you may know them by heart. We read these scriptures. And we know them. But what we're going to do is we're breaking it down and we're meditating on these together. Behold. Wow. What weird foreign, strange, unaccustomed kind of love is this that God has already bestowed upon us. Well, how do we know what that love is like? How can we know what's really in his heart? Because he's demonstrated it towards us. He's demonstrated this kind of love which is based on the value and the preciousness of the one that's loved. He's demonstrated that towards us. He's demonstrated what value you have towards Him. Maybe nobody else. Maybe nobody in the world can see it. But He sees something in you 
this of so much value to him that he looked on the menu, saw your name, and saw the price and said, I'm willing to pay it now. That's how he sees you. That's his heart towards you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. As we begin to look at the word of what you want to, what you've done for us. Father, so often we've seen this as facts, as biblical facts. And we desperately need to have our heart impacted with a revelation of this love that you have for us. Holy Spirit, take what we've heard today. Begin to do what only you can do. Begin to turn the light on in our hearts. Father, your word, Paul prayed that you would strengthen them by your spirit in their inner man so that Christ may be able to live in them, us by faith. That being rooted and grounded in this kind of love, we may come to know, all of us together, the breadth and length and the height and depth and to know by experience the love of God that's been given to us in Christ so that we may be filled up with all of your fullness. Our confidence is you are able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that resides in us. You are a good, good father.